Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It is Friday, December 22nd, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. I don't like the way I just said producer, but we're going to keep it in. <laughs> Nick, how are we doing on our last new episode of the year? Oh man, I am doing absolutely swimmingly, Matt. It's a blessing to be with you all today. Um, Merry Christmas for all that celebrate and also Happy Hanukkah and Merry Kwanzaa and all that jazz. Um, I do want to say that it doesn't feel like we've been doing this show for almost three, almost three years now. Um, It's been an absolute whirlwind. Yeah. Yeah, it's been cool. I I am excited for where next year is going to take us. This has been a good year for us. Um, yeah, just one of those one of those episodes where we're not going to get into this too much the next couple of weeks because they're just our, our best of episodes from this year. But yeah, just like immense gratitude for everything this year and really growing from last year and the year before that. It's been it's been a fun ride so far. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to everyone who listens. Thank you to everyone who shares it with friends, who posts about it, um, all that stuff. We really, really appreciate. So thank you. And now it's Grinch time if you don't share it with friends, if you don't post about it, if you don't help us the way we help you stay informed, give it a shot. It would be a really awesome thing you could do for us to uh, (laughs) just help us grow our listenership. If every person here listening right now sends it to one person, we double. Yeah. So that's all you got to do. One friend. Pick one person, maybe two, maybe five. If you're lucky enough to have 10 friends, why are they not listening to TPT? But send it to all 10. Absolutely. And you took that in a way that I was not going to, I didn't think you were going to go with it. You, you said like Grinch and I was like, oh damn, like he's about to like shame people who aren't sending it with friends. <laughs> but no, you took like a very nice route. So that was good. Good call. Yeah. Sometimes you got to just cut to the chase. My heart grew three sizes before I started that one. <laughs> Let's give the people what they came here for. for our quick hits and the first one is by Kara Buckley of the New York Times who writes how Christmas tree farms can help wildlife very topical Uh, maybe not as topical as if we would have talked about this like right after Thanksgiving when when people who celebrate Christmas are buying their Christmas trees but you know it's three days before Christmas Day let's talk about Christmas trees I always find the whole real tree versus fake tree debate really interesting because I can see both sides and I think that there's some merits to, to each one of them So let's talk about real trees first. They smell great. They have that real Christmassy feel to them. They don't contribute to more plastic usage. And those are all those are all good things. Fake trees, on the other hand, don't require you to cut down more trees each year. And it's it's a one time purchase that should last 10 plus years. They're also cheaper after about two years of use. So depending on what your goals are each Christmas season, if you celebrate Christmas, I I could really understand why people gravitate towards a real tree or a fake tree. This new wrinkle in the debate is about the actual growing of the trees process and the benefits that real trees provide before they're cut down. 
talks about Christmas tree farms and how they serve as small young forests, which means that Christmas tree farms continuously stay green thanks to the amount of saplings that are planted for every one tree that's cut. So while they grow out, they're cleaning the air, fresh water supply nearby, and the atmosphere. The debate gets a bit more nuanced with large tree farms, which typically need to spray pesticides a few times a year, which is going to add additional stress to the ecosystem. David Mizuski of the National Wildlife Federation had a really interesting quote on this and said, I grew up thinking the same, like, oh no, killing the tree is bad. But that urban environmentalist attitude amounted to a simplified view of the complexity of life and death on this planet. Just like you eat broccoli, you kill the broccoli plant, right? <laughs> so Mizuski says that he would also encourage people to think of Christmas trees as something that contributes to their ecosystem while growing and not just something that gets cut down at the end of its life. Nick, what are your thoughts on Christmas trees? I am a real Christmas tree guy. Um, we had tried two years ago to get a fake one, and we did. Um, it lasted for two years, exactly. So I, mm-hmm. I know you said like one-time purchase could be set for 10 years. And I'm not saying that that's not true. That that probably is true for some of the higher-end ones. Mm-hmm. We had gotten like a mid-range one maybe. And it lasted two years before, like, the branches just completely just sagging, not working, not holding anything up. So, yeah, uh, we went, we actually went, I actually sent you the picture the day that we went, I don't know if you remember, but we went to a tree farm, local tree farm, cut one down, and God, it just feels so good. I I, I can't even tell you how good it feels. Yeah. Like, when you get that fresh smell, like, wow, it is, it's unmatched. It really is. It's so freaking cool. Yeah, I'm I'm also a real tree guy. I have not cut down my own tree before. That's something that I would like to do at some point when I when I get a tree next time. We don't have trees in our current apartment just because don't really have the space for it. But I think it'd be really cool to like go to the farm and just have that whole experience. I think going into reading this article, like I said, I could see both sides very well. And I understand like depending on what people are looking for, they both kind of make sense. But now that I've read this, I think I'm very pro real tree. And, you know, it's, it's that growing trees really helps the local ecosystem. It's going to offset some of the carbon and not nearly as much as mature trees. Like we're not talking about deforesting a rainforest and then planting a couple saplings. Mm-hmm. This is something where if you stagger the growing cycle, you can continuously make sustainable tree farming happen. Um, and, and I think going to a local tree farm, like you said, is very different than going somewhere where, you know, they're going to order their trees from who knows where. Yeah. Ship it in from these huge tree farms. Like that's, that's where I think that, you know, you're not contributing to more plastic, but you're contributing to transportation emissions. And with a local tree farm, like the only transportation emissions are driving to the local farm, which is presumably closer than wherever you're getting the tree shipped in from for the larger farms. And it's helping the ecosystem while it's growing. So I think this is a really cool article. I think that this, I wouldn't say changed my mind, but definitely pushed me in a direction that I was very open towards going to. Yeah. You were already on the path. You just needed a little kick in the butt. Yeah. It could have really been one way or the other. Like somebody could tell me that yeah. cutting, cutting down <laughs> trees is always terrible. And I'd be like, yeah, all right. Fake trees. It is sold. Fake trees. <laughs> but, it but is. <laughs> this, was, this was the opposite. You know, I, I think that this was a, a cool story for me and hopefully for the listeners. No, I absolutely agree with you. It, it, it is really cool. And I love um, David's analogy to broccoli, like killing the broccoli mm-hmm. plant. Such a good point. Like all good things 
come to an end. That's why we plant more. It's all good. Yeah. But all right, let's get into our next story from the Washington Post, where Nicholas Rivero writes, with few easy solutions to their climate problems, airlines rethink contrails. Contrails or condensation trails are the white clouds that appear behind jet engines during flight. And they are formed by the engines of the planes creating hot air and soot particles while burning fuel and then pushing those particles into the cool atmosphere. The contrails themselves were found by the IPCC to have a higher climate impact than the burning of fuel itself. American Airlines, Delta, and KLM are looking into how flying lower or higher could avoid creating contrails. Aviation is responsible for 3.5% of human-caused climate change with no cheap short-term answer in sight for how to reduce the industry's emissions. If avoiding contrails could be done effectively, it could be a good step in the decarbonization process before the airlines are able to solve their fuel issue. This solution isn't guaranteed to be easy or effective, though, and the computer models are struggling to predict which contrails are responsible for global warming. The clouds created by contrails reflect heat from the Earth's surface back down to Earth, but they also reflect some of the sun's heat back into space. Scientists believe this means that nighttime contrails most likely heat the planet. But estimates for how much this contributes to aviation's total emissions range from as low as 8% to as high as 57%. Airlines also need to figure out if the cost of rerouting airplanes to avoid contrails will outweigh the extra jet fuel used by rerouting. Yeah, and in the meantime, American Airlines is an example that's listed in the article, and that company rerouted 35 flights by using Google's and Breakthrough Energy's AI models, which contributed to 54% less contrail cover while only using 2% more fuel. So if contrails do contribute closer to the higher end of their estimates, then this could be a really simple solution until jet fuel is made as close to net zero as possible. The issue that's going to remain is contrails tend to dissipate within a few hours, whereas the carbon from jet fuel burning will last for hundreds of years at least. So it really is a genuine trade-off. And right now there's not enough of a consensus to know when that trade-off is worth it. Yeah, That's kind of the issue we're running into right now. And that's why everything we just talked about is if or could, you know, we're not definitively telling the airlines, hey, you need to do this because here's the data. This is pretty early in, you know, the scientific process. Yeah, agreed. I don't have too much for this one. I think it's, there's a lot that's still, oh gosh, I'm going to use this up in the air. Um, nice. So that was a nice one. Good dad joke, Nick. Um, but yeah, it's just, there's too much going on um, to, to make a, an absolute final decision on this. And you have to consider the contrails, like you said, are only in the air for a few hours. Mm-hmm. So is it worth using that 2% more fuel in order to, to just not, you know, or to, to reduce contrail cover by 50%? I'm not too sure. That's a, that's a question for scientists that are much smarter than us. Yeah, and uh, I'm, it's my turn for the dad joke. We're not rocket scientists. So <laughs> I'm going to say this as if I know what I'm talking about, but at the end of the day, we're podcasters. So I think if if the estimates are closer to 57% um, for how much contrails contribute to total emissions, look, if you could lower that 57% a ton while only increasing the fuel usage by 2%, that's great. But if contrails are as low as 8% and you're then burning 2% more of what's already 92% of your emissions in, in burning fuel, that's where it's not worth it. So, Mm -hmm. uh, short answer for both of us is we don't know. 
and that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. This is this is in its infancy, so I'm I'm all good with not knowing everything about it. Yeah, sometimes we we make you think for us, and uh, this is one of those stories. Let's move on to this week's environmental policy roundup. Indigenous tribes in the Pacific Northwest are celebrating an agreement with the Biden administration, which will dedicate $300 million to salmon restoration projects, including upgrades to hatcheries in the Columbia River Basin. The deal also includes a five-year pause on court proceedings over the river, a pledge to develop more tribally run hydropower projects, and a pledge to study alternatives for farmers if Congress decides to breach the Snake Dam River along the Columbia. The European Commission proposed a law last year that would require all packaging to be fully recyclable by 2030. EU countries backed this new law on Monday while also backing proposed phase-outs of single-use plastic items such as thin bags for fruit and vegetables, mini shampoo bottles, and the disposable plates, cups, and boxes used to serve food on fast food restaurants' premises. The United Kingdom will implement a new carbon tax by 2027 on products from countries with less strict climate policies charge applied will depend on the amount of carbon emitted in the production of the imported good and any gap between the carbon price applied in the country where the good is coming from and the carbon price faced by UK producers. Yeah, touching on the um, EU story, this is great because I'm hoping that this serves as a precedent for honestly the rest of the world, but especially the US, Mm -hmm. because we don't have, we still have all these things. We have the single-use plastics. We have um, disposable plates, cups, boxes. I almost don't even know if they can like outlaw that here because it's such like a, it's entwined in our like like think about like the red solo cups like that is entwined into the USA. So I don't know. At least them doing it and showing that they can do it might serve as like a hey we can do this too and let's get it going. Yeah, I mean truthfully, I don't know why we can't other than lack of will because you know to go with that example of red solo cups make them a little bit more durable so they can survive the dishwasher right and then all of a sudden it becomes a lot easier to reuse reuse those products that you you can't yeah reduce or you you can't recycle um i'm gonna take a more skeptical approach to this because i'm curious what fully recyclable means are we talking about something like plastics right now where even the ones that are fully recyclable are recycled at 9% of the time. Right, right. You know, it's it's just hard to say for certain that this will work 100% as intended. And you know what? Maybe it doesn't need to, right? Maybe if it's mostly successful and there are some issues with it, that's still way better than right now where you can use as many single-use plastics as you want. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm being too cynical here, but... I would hope this is as successful as it should be because banning the use of certain products like single-use plastic items, the plastic grocery bags, that works. That's been proven to work. The only part I'm a little skeptical of is what does fully recyclable mean? And and maybe that's outlined in the the like official wording of the law. We were just reading the press briefing from Reuters, but... Mm-hmm. You know, that's the only thing I'm a little hesitant on. I think overall, this is a really, really good thing and a great step in the next direction. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. All right. As always, those stories are in your show notes if you want to read any for more detail. I'm going to take a quick break and we got two more stories for you when we get back.
Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co slash tpt for 15% off. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co slash tpt. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, climate change is hurting coral worldwide, but these reefs off the Texas coast are thriving. By Jamie Stengel, L.M. Otero, and Kendria Lafleur of the Associated Press. This article is an important one to me because, you know, for the same reason we say climate change instead of global warming, we can't assume that everything that's happening to a species in one part of the world is happening to that species everywhere. Climate change, ocean acidification, rising sea levels, rising sea temperatures are all impacting corals negatively, but things aren't as bad off the coast of Galveston, Texas, where the flower garden banks, national marine sanctuaries, cool, deep water habitat far from the shore is providing a safe haven for coral reefs. The article reminds us that coral reefs are fragile, and this will only provide protection for so long before the dangers that I just mentioned start to catch up. But the sanctuary did also experience some coral bleaching this summer, meaning even in this area where things are good and things are going much better, they're not perfect. It's not great. It's just not nearly as bad as what was experienced close by in Florida. Mm -hmm. 35 countries and territories across five different oceans and seas have experienced mass coral bleaching this year, according to Derek Manzello, coordinator of NOAA's Coral Reef Watch. Luckily for coral reefs off the coast of Texas, the undersea mountains 100 miles off their coast are still covered with yellow, orange, and pink corals. If you are so inclined, swipe up, click your show notes. The pictures in this are are beautiful, and you really get a sense of what these coral reefs are looking like. But yeah, cool, cool story. Yeah, seriously. Like, I would never have thought that Texas would be the place that coral could be just thriving and doing like extremely well. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not a, a place like I look at that water. I don't know if you've ever seen the water in like the Gulf of Mexico and like near, near Galveston before, but it doesn't look like the best looking water. I'll say that. Yeah. It looks a little muddy or, or something like that. Um, but the fact that this coral is, is thriving is really, really cool. And it's, it's promising. And it, maybe it gives us a recipe too for, what is required going forward in order to, to keep coral reefs uh, alive and, and thriving during this warming period that we're having. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you because when I think of tropical coral reef habitats, I, I don't think of Texas. <laughs> no, not at all. And maybe that's because the water that we're talking about is surface level and this is very deep. You know, this is next to undersea mountains. So I, I think that you're right. 
whatever is working there, how do we replicate that? And, and maybe it's just the perfect conditions where like the water temperature there right now is so great that ocean acidification, coral bleaching, it's just not happening at the same level. Mm-hmm. Truth is, I don't know. But I think that you're absolutely right. Like whatever is working there could work elsewhere. It's just a matter of are those conditions replicable or is this just kind of like right place, right time? Yeah, exactly. Good point. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is from the Associated Press, where Julie Watson writes, from urchin crushing to lab-grown kelp, efforts to save California's kelp forests show promise. Really cool story about Northern California's kelp forests, which have decreased in size by roughly 96% between 2014 and 2020. And a crew of volunteers that have set out to crush purple sea urchins that are largely responsible for this decline. These types of ecosystems are declining worldwide because of climate change, which is a serious issue due to the importance of kelp forests on ocean health. But so far, culling sea urchins is having a similar effect to ending clear cutting of land forests as a solution to ending this kelp deforestation. The sea urchin, in this case, purple sea urchin population, was able to get out of control thanks in part to a disease that killed off around 90% of sunflower sea stars, which are a type of starfish that's actually the main predator of the sea urchin. So as those populations declined, the population of sea urchins increased, and the population of sea urchins increasing is bad news for the kelp forests, which are eaten by sea urchins. This article says that healthy patches of kelp and schools of fish returned this summer to small sections where urchins were crushed at Caspar Cove, which is around 160 miles or 200 kilometers north of San Francisco. Scientists say that this progress makes them less concerned that the forests are lost forever, but saving the forest is still going to take a lot of hard work. Data will be recorded over the next three years to determine what methods are most effective as California builds its first plan to restore and manage kelp. When the plan is finalized, this could help countries like Australia and Chile with their own efforts to save their threatened kelp forests. Another interesting thing to come out of this story is how people unrelated to the field of conservation can get involved with kelp reforestation. The author writes, some believe the only way to restore kelp is to reduce the purple urchins, which can go dormant for years, only to remerge and then eat new kelp growth. Chefs have started serving purple urchins to build a market. Yeah, I think that's a really cool like adaptation to what's going on. You know, I I know that urchin is uh, sea urchin is popular in certain cuisines. It's a uh, I've seen it on like sushi menus, yeah. But it, it's cool that now this purple sea urchin is is being used for restaurants. Um, I guess before we start discussing more, I'll add Dr. Joy Hollenbach, a veterinarian featured throughout this article, says it can feel counterintuitive to kill animals when my job is to save them, but this is helping to save the entire ecosystem. So Nick, here we are, me and you, on our last episode of the year advocating for killing sea urchins when our show is almost always about advocating for protection of species. Yep. It is pretty funny. It is, it is shocking almost that we're, we're advocating for, it's like when we got that spotted lanternfly story. Yeah. Of like almost a year ago, probably at this point we were like, wow. Yeah. No, it was just, this, it was last summer, this summer. Oh, okay. It's yeah. This summer. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was wild. Like, yeah. Kill this bug, please go out, do it. So same thing here, guys. If you see a purple urchin, you know, just walking around, um, go ahead and, and throw a spike through them and uh, give them to your local. Try and cook them. Yeah. I don't know. And without stabbing yourself and uh, having to go to the hospital. So that's that's my two cents on this one. And and before you do that, 
look up how to prepare it. I don't know. I don't want people to get like poisoned if they don't cook this correctly. True. <laughs> good point. Very good point. This is not a, uh, this is not legitimate advice unless you want it to be, in which case do your research before just listening to two of us. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And don't forget what you're saving. We're saving the kelp. And if you need to remind yourself, what does that look like? I can't remember what that looks like. Go ahead and watch my octopus teacher because mm-hmm. there is a bunch of it. He, he's in South Africa throughout that whole um, documentary and he just swims through it and it's just beautiful. Like it's so cool. It reminds me of the Goblet of Fire. Um, Harry Potter when they're, when he's like, un, when, um, why can't I remember? Oh, with the mermaid. Yes. Uh, it's the second That's challenge. The second challenge. Thank you. The wizard wizarding cup yeah that whatever but anyway kelp reminds me of that uh that scene all the time so we got to save these these kelp forests they're really cool yeah kelp save them (laughs) (laughs) all right that's how we're gonna end our last new episode of the year we will be back next friday and the friday after for two best of tpt 2023 episodes come check them out and until then go give the show a five-star rating review wherever you can follow our socials at planet today pod Nick Janus produces all of our episodes and makes all of our music that you hear throughout each episode. Nick, where can people bump your tunes, especially on New Year's Eve when there's literally no song I would rather listen to than a Bud Cape song? <laughs> you can listen to my stuff at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. Bump it on New Year's Eve, folks. Our logo is made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone. Merry Christmas if you're celebrating. We will catch you right here next Friday. Happy birthday, Angelo. Peace. And Nick, I'll see you tonight, buddy. Yeah. Yeah.